again, anybody at any stage of the career, wherever you are, you actually deserve to be there. So go ahead and pull up a seat at your table and sit down and contribute, right? And learn because in all teams, in all organizations, it's a give and take. And to me, I never want to be the smartest person at the table. It's like, if you are all learning from me, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I, I need to find another table. But, but it's because I'm a learner at heart. And I, I will say there's probably people that aren't comfortable with that. There are people like, oh, I, I'm already an expert in this and I'm good. That's fine. It's not me. This is the Once a Scientist podcast. I'm Nick Edwards. We're back with new episodes. So keep an eye out and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. All right. I'm sitting down talking with Tari Suprapto. Tari is the director of search and evaluation at Novo Nordisk. She's also the board chair for the San Diego Innovation Council. Um, Tari did her undergrad at Swarthmore College, uh, PhD in cell- cellular and structural biology, and has spent uh, several years kind of bridging the academic industry divide, uh, doing some really interesting things. So she was at, at Rockefeller University for a while, um, working in tech transfer, um, and uh, commercialization, as well as uh, spent some time at the Salk Institute uh, doing business development um, and, and, and tech transfer types of activities. And so, uh, Tari, I'm really excited to have you on and thanks for uh, coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Nick. And my pleasure and honor to be here as well. So, yeah, I mean, look, there's the theme of this podcast is essentially like, what what do you do like after you do your PhD or your postdoc? Like if you're not going to go on to do uh, um, academic science, I, I, you know, I've, I've had several people that have come on PIs and, and uh, um, investigators, but like there's so many things out there and, and you have kind of like for your entire career really like spent a lot of time working across that, that spectrum of, uh, of different uh, possibilities, and so I'm I'm really excited to hear your perspective on you know the state of, of academia, the the different options that that uh, there are within industry, and like how you've kind of navigated that. Uh, so, you know, what was that first pivot point uh, at which you decided to uh, go from bench science to whatever you did next? Yeah, uh, that's I love this question because it highlights so much of of my journey, um, you know, you know, post PhD to to where I am today, and I would say the first pivot point was really realizing that uh, to spend the rest of my professional life at the bench in the laboratory. Whereas that was my initial aspiration when I had graduated college, where I applied to a PhD program and ended up at the Rockefeller University, which was an amazing place. It changed over time, over over the years. And I found myself 2 a.m. staring down a frozen centrifuge rotor (laughs) and seeing an experiment that I had spent two days doing. Basically, I was just going to have to torch it. And I was all by myself. And I'm like, this is not what I want to do. Um, so this is like a very specific moment where you were like, it is a very specific moment realizing <laughs> like, wow, it is, it's, it was really the isolation that feeling like I'm, I'm in this all by myself that really got to me. And of course, you know, during the day when with your lab mates, it's, it's all fun and games um, to a certain extent. Right. And let's, I'll just say for the record, of course, I have nothing but the most absolute respect um, for and admiration for those that continue on at the bench. And that's also why I spent over 15 years working with 
the with the academic researchers, especially for those that wanted to try to find a, a real world application um, 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 for for what they were working on. But you know, going back to what I was saying was like realizing for myself this is not where I wanted to be was really that that point. And then you know, I spent give myself a 24 hour pity party um, <laughs> with my husband holding my hand and saying, okay, sweetheart, but you're going to really figure out what you need to do next. Right. Yeah. Cause we're not going to wake up every day crying and complaining about how everything sucks. And this is something that I took, I have taken with me for, you know, all the time moving forward, which is like, I got to run to something and not away from something. And what that meant was that I spent quite a few months really taking a good look hard at myself and seeing what is it, that I don't like about where I am and how can I flip that, right? So if I don't like being in isolation, then I need to be in a career where I'm interfacing with a lot of people. Was mm -hmm. I ready to walk away from science? Absolutely not. I've, I've loved science since I was very young and I wanted to stay close to it. Um, and so I remember going to Cold Spring Harbor for a conference um, and I actually picked up a book called Alternative Careers from from the ivory tower, I think roughly that's what it's called. And okay. each book, each chapter was a career path. And in there was business development, science journalism, intellectual property law, um, as well as technology transfer. So I started bookmarking the one, the chapters that really spoke to me. Hmm. And then fortuitously, a couple of months later, the Rockefeller University had its 100th anniversary of its, of its inception. And they invited all of their alumni to come back and they actually published for the first time in a very long time, an alumni directory. I remember it, it was bright blue paper, hard copy, <laughs> right? Cause PDFs weren't exactly a thing back then. Yeah. Um, now I'm aging myself completely, but it gave me all the names of people who had been in the Rockefeller PhD program and what they were doing. And there were email addresses and there were phone numbers. So I circled all the people that looked like they were doing something interesting. And I cold emailed and cold called all of wow. them asking, hi, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm a current graduate student here. Are you planning on coming to the Centennial? Would love to meet with you face-to-face -face and spend 15, 20 minutes talking about what you're doing. So this is the art of informational interviewing, right? I'm not going out there holding my hand up for a job. I'm simply trying to gather information about like, kind of like what we're doing right now. How did you get to from you where you were finishing your PhD to where you are today and what drew you to it and so on and so forth, right? And of course, not everyone replied, but a good chunk of people replied. A good chunk of them were not coming. Quite a few were coming. So I connected with with a lot of people within that. And I realized, I was like, this, this I like, right? And, you know, this was before I took, you know, any personality tests like Myers-Briggs or anything. I'm a people person and I need that, that contact to, to feel really satisfied. So that's check one needs to be around people. <laughs> okay. And, 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 and so it was like a meta process. Like you, you figured this out as you were doing the, yes, absolutely. The, the search. Yeah. Yeah. But it took that, you know, first of all, that self introspection and then going that extra effort, right. I wasn't just waiting for stuff to come to me. It was really about really being proactive and like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to figure this out. I have to, there, there's, there was no other choice for me. Um, otherwise. And were, um, were people, were people generally pretty receptive? Like when yes. you reached out to them? Yeah. 
And yeah. that's a key thing that I recognize very early on. Just like people love talking about themselves. <laughs> it I depends mean, on how you ask here, questions, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's but that too is part of informational interviewing. You ask a few questions, and people will happily tell you their story. And and everyone has such a unique journey of of how they got to where they are and what their challenges and their successes were. So, um, you know, probably if similar to you, I love hearing those and. Definitely in talking to some, it helped kind of be like, okay, not, not, not so into doing that, but sure. awesome for you. Right. <laughs> um, so then I'm, I, I centered on academic technology transfer because Rockefeller itself had a technology transfer office and oh, that no. was a fairly easy informational interview to get. Right. I just simply sent an email to the then director, um, and also attached, um, what was my resume back then, which was a little slim and, um, turns out I had gone to undergrad at Swarthmore and the director was from that area. And she, so she knew the college really well. And she's like, oh, you're one of the few Swarthmore people that actually, that I've actually met. So let's, let's meet. So we met. And after we talked for about 45 minutes, she was like, she's like, would you want to like, you know, work here? I can't pay you, but just to get some experience and some exposure. And so I was, as she likes to say her first and last intern. But it opened up the door for me to then get my first position after graduate school, because when when I finished and I defended and she actually came to my thesis defense, she was a very supportive mentor and we're still really you know good friends to this day. Um, she sent my resume along to all of the directors of the tech transfer offices in New York um, and said, you should have a look at her. She's she's bright. She's willing to learn. Um, and um, you should consider her for an entry-level position. And Sloan Kettering called and said, uh, we've heard about you and we think we might have an opportunity for you. So I had a job before, you know, before I even graduated, which was great. Um, I will say that I kind of did this all under the radar <laughs> uh, because at the time, and I don't know if that's still true today, but it was something that was frowned upon, you know, not doing your the, the classical path of, you know, graduate school, postdoc, and then tenure track. And I can tell you, my advisor was not incredibly happy with me that I chose not to do a postdoc um, and that I actually turned down a number of opportunities, but I simply said, it's not what I want to do. And it's just going to be a waste of my time and theirs. And they're going to get mad at you because I wasted their time. And he finally said like, fine. So that got me my first real job post PhD. Um, and my, my start in academic technology transfer, which I did for a total of 17 years across the three institutions. Um, um, what was it about that specific like type of role that was appealing to you? So it, it uh, I knew that it would allow me to sort of stay in the academic setting, which uh -huh. is familiar, right? You know, the whole you know university aspect of it. Um, the internship had had taught me a lot about the basics of of what the job was, right? And mm -hmm. um, it was, I hate to say this, but it was a fairly um, easy and straightforward transition once I had done that internship, right? And so um, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really apply to to anything. It's like, you know, it was like this, yeah. everything just sort of <laughs> fell into place. I'm like, you know what, let's just do this, <laughs> right? And just, you know, get, get more experience that way. And Sloan Kettering's tech transfer office was a big office, about a dozen people. Um, I had the uh, associate director 
um, directly mentor me, but he also assigned some of the more senior staff to also teach me the nuts and bolts of things from different types of agreements, um, having me tag along to meetings with investigators, certainly for the first few months. Um, and then probably by the time I hit my six months, I was you know, given a few people um, um, portfolios to handle on my own. And, um, and so I was there for, for about two years. And then the Rockefeller office had a position open and I was like, well, I want to go back home. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I applied and, and went back and I stayed there for 11 years, seven and a half of which I did remotely because I moved out to San Diego for personal reasons. So oh, I wow. worked remotely and had a home office before it was cool and acceptable. Um, so, you know, the, the, the pandemic years are like, yeah, I've, I've, I've been working remotely, not a, not a problem. Um, Were but- you traveling all the time then? Um, I would go back to New York uh, to campus once a year, and then we would always have at least two or three conferences where we'd be traveling to and converge there. Um, and I, we had weekly staff meetings that I would always call into. So I'm very used to working East Coast hours and, you know, doing it before my kids wake up, you know, having yeah. those those calls. So <laughs> we, all, we, we all now know how important it is to like, okay, when is everything quiet? And here's going to be a call. I had to figure that out many, many years ago. Um but, as I'm as as I'm like telling my son, hey, yeah. wait, I'm po- I'm recording a podcast right here. <laughs> just, oh no, I already literally sent the just text. like five seconds ago. <laughs> I, I sent the text into the family channel recording. Please, DND, <laughs> do not disturb. Um, um, but yeah, so so and that was that was a great experience because I think here's another thing that we need to really re-examine in in every field, in every professional field is this work, this, this concept of work-life balance, right? We are human mm-hmm. beings. We have our personal lives. And when they say, bring your whole self to the office, that's a piece of it, right? Um, yeah. It doesn't mean that you air out all your dirty laundry. It means, however, you know, for instance, for myself, right? I am a professional. I am a businesswoman, um, scientist by training, but I'm also, um, um, you know, a partner to my husband. I'm a, I'm a mother to, you know, to my children and, and to my pets. And that's my whole person. And I can't separate that. And um, yeah. it's fine when everything is hunky-dory, but, you know, when, you know, you know, one kid gets sick or, you know, the partner travels, right? We all have to have to be jigger. And I think work environments that aren't willing to recognize that and offer flexibility around that, that's 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 not such a good thing right and i'm being perfectly polite and euphemistic about this um but that being said it was that being able to work remotely and to and to be a parent to my my then babies right um and still work and still maintain my visibility i mean that was a huge gift um yeah yeah and this is where I'm hoping that the flexibility that was given to people during the pandemic continues to be extended. And that's apparently that's what 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 the word is right now is like, unless it's hybrid or or remote or with some sort of flexibility. Nowadays, people are like, why would I do that? Right. Yeah. Well, it depends on if you're looking at Twitter or LinkedIn, to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> Right. But, but, you know, when, when, when we talk about also that running to something and figuring out what makes you happy and fulfilled, right. That too is a bit of a box to consider, right. Like, um, 
I've always, I always, I also learned a long time ago. It's like, you got to figure out which kind of person you are. Do you work so that you can live? Right. So work is mm -hmm. necessary. And ideally you should do something that you enjoy doing, or do you live to work? Right. And then we get, those are like the workaholics that, you know, work is like what a hundred percent makes, makes them happy. And everything is, is a little bit secondary and yeah. neither one is, 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 is better than the other. It's just a reality, but you have to think about like, what kind of, where do you fall? And therefore what kind of career path and what, what position is going to allow you to be, to be that person. And because I'm the kind of person where I work so I can live, right. I mm -hmm. value my, my personal, my family life, um, very highly. So I'm, I'm never going to take a job that would, that would compromise that. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. um, and again, that's a little bit piece of, of the introspection um, that I highly recommend that that anyone do at any point, right? Whether you're still in school, you know, whether you're um, a postdoc, whether you're in the middle of of a job and you're like something doesn't feel quite right. Um, and I, I've had people reach out to me almost on a on a monthly basis, saying like, "Hey, can I talk to you about sort of like what I should be doing next?" I was like. Sure. Right. But I'm like you, I'm just asking the questions like, what's, what's the problem, right? What's not making you happy? What do you think will make you happy kind of thing? Right. So anyway, so, so Rockefeller was, was, was a nice, good, long stretch, most of which I did remote. And then my director decided to retire and she said, you're going to have to find something else most likely because when I retire, my replacement is probably not going to honor our arrangement. I'm like, okay. And okay. I got wind of, the business development director at the Salk Institute got connected with um, the hiring manager there. And she and I are, are very good friends to this day. And I successfully applied uh, for that. And I was there for three and a half years. So this comes now to the second big pivot point, because as you can see from Salk, I went into pharma and I went into animal health pharma, which yeah. you're like, what's that all about, right? And yeah, what is that? What does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, sort of like, so, so just as there's the traditional academic scientific path, right, that we that we that we talked about before, the grad student to the postdoc to the tenure track, in academic tech transfer, you know, you you do an entry level position, then you have a mid mid level, then you start to get into some more senior stuff, right? And I ended up as as a senior director with a focus on sort of like the more external facing functions. And I was doing, com you know, complex, um, you know, deals and relations, strategic partnerships, and that was all fun. Mm -hmm. But at some point I was like, well, if this is it, like, am I okay with that? And I just kind of felt like I have so much more runway and so much more of a, of a hunger to learn that. Um, and what I was also finding was I was hitting a glass ceiling because at other institutions, there were VP positions that were opening up, but they all said you need to have at least five to eight years of experience in industry. Mm. So I automatically didn't qualify. But you had been for working that. for like more than ten years in in academia, but like it's a very different game, right? Right, right. Because what it turned out that a lot of the senior administrations at various institutions across the nation and globally as well were starting to think like we really need to bring people who've actually spent time on the other side. And they're not, yeah. they're not necessarily wrong, but when that's what the recruiters are, are saying like, oh, you'd be perfect, except you don't have this. I'm like, well, let's go get that, right? I hate feeling <laughs> like I have no choice, right? And so, yeah. Yeah. 
And that pivot was actually harder than going from traditional research into tech transfer, because by this time really? I'm older, I'm more senior and companies, especially large ones. Um, initially I was applying for business development and licensing positions mm -hmm. and the typical profile is you've gone to business school or you and or you've worked for you know one of the big management consulting you've 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 done lots of financial modeling before right and i've worked in early stage academic stuff where like that's not what we do um, yeah and so so that made my jump take a, a little bit longer and a little bit harder than um than i personally personally i thought it would be so for anyone else who has been like oh i want to jump from you know, academic tech transfer to, you know, to corporate BDOs, like, well, just so you know, they, 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 they do, they do want you to have these things. Yeah. What, what, what was like the, um, like the key thing that, I mean, is, is it, was it the financial modeling? Like, uh, or was it a, a like a, a mixture of a bunch of things? I mean, do, looking back, do you think like, was it, were you really missing something or was it just like a credential that needed to be on your resume and, and you could have picked it up quickly? Yeah. I mean, I think if, if I had, if I had, if I had had experience with actual financial modeling, you know, like taking finance classes, valuations, you know, proper valuation classes, which again, they were out there, but right. You know, like life and other work gets in the way. And I was sure. to be honest, I wasn't, super interested in that piece at the time and not really understanding how important it was. So that, so I was, I, I kind of felt stuck for a while and I was doing, um, setting up a research collaboration with an animal health pharma company. And, um, they, they one of their representatives actually came to town, um, to San Diego, um, for a wholly diff different event that turns out we were co-attending. And I said, when we ran into it, I was like, wait, you've never met my researcher before. And he's like, you know, you're right. We should totally have dinner. I was like, okay, we'll go to our event. I'll drive you up, you know, to the restaurant for dinner, take you back to your hotel, whatever. Right. So total, like, you know, people relationship kind of thing. Yeah. And during that drive, he, you know, typical conversation and he asked me how I was doing. And I kind of just shared with him. It's like, you know, I've, I've actually been really looking at jumping to industry, but it, it's been a real challenge. And because we had such a good relationship, I said, do you think I'm too old, too expensive? And just, not a right fit. And he's like, no, but he's like, huh. but if you're looking at BD and licensing, yeah, you, you don't fit the classical profile that they're looking for. Um, sure. And, and he was like, however, on my team and he represented external innovation slash scouting for the company, mm. he was like, we actually want people with PhDs, strong science background, but also good people skills, strong network. And, and he was like, you're one of the most network people I know. He was like, yeah, I totally consider you if, if, if there was an opportunity, I was like, well, thanks for that. Right. Yeah. Two months later, he calls and he says, I have an opening. And wow. if you are at all interested and he was like, it might be too junior for you. Maybe you want to stay in human health. I know animal health is a little bit of a tangent. I'm like, I was like, well, let's talk about the nitty gritty. Right. And, um, you know, he gave me the range of the pay scale and I'm like, I could work with that. I'll put in my application. And three months later I got my offer. Interesting. So, so a very, this was a simple, casual conversation just created an opportunity, right? And that's yeah. another thing. Like people don't know what what you're up to, what you're thinking, and you have to just you know find the people you trust and share. Hey, you know what? I'm really thinking about this. 
And yeah. that's a piece of advice I give to to anyone who who asks me. It's just like you want to be one of the first people they think of when an opportunity arises. Um, and um, and and that's that's advice that served me well. And I'm happy that it's it's panned out that way. So. Um, so I joined this external innovation group, and that was very much scouting, scouting into academia, scouting into, into biotech, looking for opportunities, technologies, assets um, that would apply into our programs. And animal health was a blast. I absolutely loved it because there I realized how much I love learning new stuff, meeting new people, um, preferably a combination of both, practically every single day. But yeah. then it turned out that all of my technology transfer experience was also useful because I had dealt with so many types of actual written agreements to document these business relationships that need to take place. And at one point, their, their BD team got so overloaded because at the time, the company was acquiring another company. So the BD team was totally preoccupied with divestitures and so on and so forth. And they were like, hey, we hear that you actually know how to read a contract and negotiate. <laughs> and we have we have we we need a simple renegotiation on this particular deal. Do you think you could help us? And my boss said, "Yeah, she, if she's willing, um, you you know she can spend part of her time on that." So I end up doing you know doing some transactions despite not having the classical BD profile. And that's another thing. Once you're in, they they'll move you around as much as yeah. you're willing to be moved around. Like, oh, we you know you have this skill set. Can you help us with this? Some companies like my current company now has a job rotation offering. So I can rotate into different departments. Um, oh, really? And build Interesting. Build set that way because it's it's part of a retention strategy, right? It's sort of yeah. like part of that professional development, that professional growth. And rather than have you leave and then come back, why don't we just expose you to, to different things right here, quote unquote, at home? Um, so that was, so that was fun. And then, you know, and just dealing with a bunch of collaborations and other partnership type things. Um, and, um, and then working across all the multiple species and, and their diseases. And the only reason why I left that company was then my current company, Novo Nordisk came knocking. So I had done a deal with them in one of my previous incarnations and their scouting team in the U S were actually old friends of mine. Um, one of them, he's now retired. I had actually negotiated my first exclusive license against, so, and we stayed friends. So that shows you how well that went. Um, and another one, um, from the U S team, um, we actually, uh, managed a joint invention when he was an academic tech transfer. So knowing that their scouting team was open to people with my type of background was like, it's when they say, like, will you come play with us? I'm like, sure. Um, and the beauty of both of those jobs, both of those companies, they wanted me to stay where I was physically. So I never had to relocate. And that's actually like a big, a big deal for me. Um, you know, I live in San Diego, which is, you know, one of the best places I've ever lived. So if I don't have to give that up, I just won't. So, um, and that's how I arrived at Novo. You, you kind of like uh, land and expand a little bit, right? You get into a position that, that you have, you know, some relevant skills and then you learn a little bit within there to expand a little bit. And then, and then, uh, it sounds like you're continuing to do that within a search and evaluation function, um, uh, at, at Novo, right? Because search and evaluation is, it's, it's kind of a, it's a part of business development, right? Yes. Um, and that is, and that is how we, we were organized in, in, in both pharma companies was that, the, the, the search and evaluation slash external innovation slash scouting 
is is part of the business development organization. We typically serve more the earlier stage, um, um, and it, and and you also have to work with the R and D units, right? Because you can't mm-hmm. bring in something that R and D doesn't want to work on, right? So yeah, yeah, and that too is where that constant contact with people is so important because you have to not just work with the people that are external to the company, the potential partner. You also have to work with all the people internal and in big companies that, that, that circle can be quite big. Yeah. It's never, it's never just you. Right. How many and pe- so, yeah. Like how many people are at Novo Nordisk, for example, it's probably like, you know, at least tens of thousands. Yes. Supposedly we are, we are, we are approaching 60,000 as we speak. All right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and so, yeah, there's a big stakeholder group. I mean, one is just like, you're, you're, you're trying to understand what the, what the org, how the organization is built. And this is like, you know, for anybody that is like postdoc or a PhD student, this is not, this is not a trivial task of like understanding how an organization is structured and like who the people are that you need to talk to within the organization that, you know, these types of things evolve over years. Absolutely. And even then, right, what, what we, what I was taught at both of these large companies was um, my first two weeks was spent in one-on-one meetings with various stakeholders. So heads of therapeutic areas, for instance, um, um, you know, um, lead scientists that were um, helping to support any external diligence, right? So they would sort of be like, this is who's going to be sitting next to you in your first or second interaction with an external partner because they know the strategy, they know where the gaps are, right? And um, and that's been a great strategy because scientifically, I'm a generalist, right? I'm not an expert in any one disease area. Yeah. Certainly not in animal health, right? I never went to vet school. So I got very <laughs> comfortable with like being the person who knew the least, but always being open to learn. And I would always ask, give me a primer on you know, um, diseases in salmon, right? For instance, when I was at the animal health wow. company, I've asked for primers on um, on pharmacokinetics, right? So that I can get a better understanding of like, oh, what is a good PK profile, right? I don't, I didn't have any of this in my graduate school training and that's okay. But you just have to be willing to say like, I don't know this and I want to know this. So who can, who's willing to help me, you know, learn at least on a fairly fundamental level what it is. Is that an uncomfortable situation to be in? And like, I mean, how, how, how do you gain comfort with that? It's a reality piece, right? Well, I mean, I, I mean, the reality is that I'm, I'm never going to be as much of an expert in, in let's say, in, in, in pharmacokinetics compared to, I have a colleague who was formerly a professor of pharmacokinetics. There's, there's no way. I'm like, look, I'm not going to spend the next 10 years of my life trying to play that kind of catch up. Yeah. But I can be sincerely interested. I can listen and and really take advantage of that expertise. People want to be included more than they want to be excluded. Hmm. And simply being able to admit, I need you, 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 and you, because you all have skill sets and knowledge bases that I don't. It's perfect, right? And it's it's a, it's a matter of also just being very humble, but also knowing that you can hold your own. Right. Yep. You do bring something to the table. And that's something that I've, I've, I share with, again, anybody at any stage of the career, wherever you are, you actually deserve to be there. So go ahead and pull up a seat at your table and sit down and contribute right, yeah. and learn. Because in all teams, in all organizations, it's a give and take. Yeah. Right? Um, 
And to me, I never want to be the smartest person at the table. It's like, if you are all learning from me, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I, I need to find another table. <laughs> but but it's because I'm a learner at heart. And I, I will say there's probably people that aren't comfortable with that. There are people like, oh, I, I'm already an expert in this and I'm good. That's fine. Yeah. But you can bring, but what you bring is like the relationships and the access to like these early innovations that they might not have otherwise. Right. And, and so like, you have to realize that, that like the value that you bring to them, uh, while they may have like domain specific knowledge, you have connectivity and you have like, uh, the ability to access like different, uh, areas of, of, of research or, you know, kind of like connect things together essentially. Yes. It's it's I, th- I think one of the terms that I learned a long time ago was like the term rainmaker. Like, I can make it rain. Right? <laughs> so whether someone gives me um, a problem that needs a solution, saying like you know, Tari, we really need a clinical asset in whatever, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. My job in search and evaluation is I got to go search for that, right? So that means yep. spending a little time on on the computer and and you know, scanning the universe as as I like to call it. And when I find it, then I have to make contact with whoever that potential, you know, um, partner is and start saying, hi, I'm from Novo Nordisk. We're interested in this particular asset you have. Would you be open to a discussion about it? Right. To me, that's as natural as breathing. For some other people, it's like, oh, how do I even start? Right. How do I even start (laughs) writing this email? Yeah. Um, Right. Or you take a partnering meeting at one of the big events like, like a bio or a biotech showcase, you know, or any other conference. Right. I love it. It's great. You know, I, I can take, you know, 10 meetings a day and yeah, I'm tired, but I'm ready to do it the next day. So, and, and, and working with academic researchers for as long as I did also really prepared me for working with industry researchers because mm. they're actually not that different. <laughs> they came from academia for the most part. <laughs> sure. But they, they get really into the science they yep. are perhaps maybe a little bit more product application oriented, which is not a bad thing. And what we, because I've learned how to conduct myself around them, which is that combination of like humility, but also like, you know, you don't just get, you know, to like set me aside either. Right. And you're right, right that be, to be, to be there in the virtual meeting or in the, in the, in the in-person meeting and just to be able to break the ice quickly. Right. Yeah. A lot of people have said to me, it's like, well, you know, we take a meeting with you and like, clearly you have the relationship, clearly they're comfortable with you. And it immediately puts everybody at ease and it's easier to have an open and truthful conversation. And that's what you need, right? And so I always say, it's like, I'm I'm trying to break down the barriers. I'm trying to make it a less of an us versus them, less of like, ooh, big, you know, big, scary pharma and itty bitty biotech or academic lab. And I'm like, no, there's gotta be mutual respect and trust here. Yeah, and my talent is- being able to build that connection and to build it fairly, fairly quickly. Um, because I really need to let the sparks fly, right? It's, it's making it rain means, can I get the right people in the same room together, talking to each other and let's see what happens, that kind of thing. So, and that's that, I, I love doing that, right? And it doesn't always, I don't have an hundred percent success rate, but it's pretty high. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, like nobody does, but uh, um, so I, I'm I'm curious. Yeah, so going back to that San Diego Innovation Council piece, like you're you're involved at kind of this ecosystem level within San Diego as well. Um, you know, connecting people. I, I'm I'm curious, like what what do you do there? Because um, 
I'm particularly interested, and in, I think that um, there's there's been more interest in general about like connecting the dots and and like enabling uh, facilitation, like uh, whether it's like talent transfer from academic uh, institutions to uh, biotech or pharma, or whether it's actual like uh, intellectual property. Like, what what types of things do you do with this, within the San Diego Innovation Council? And then, like, you know, I'd be generally just kind of interested to hear your perspective around like what the role is of universities in innovation. Sure. So the San Diego Innovation Council was was founded by the by the San Diego research institutions first and foremost. That's that's its roots, right? That's its DNA. Um, that's why the board is also heavily composed of uh, of representatives from those academic institutions. And I joined the board when I was still at Salk, and I was allowed to stay, um, even though I moved o- over to pharma. <laughs> And it was a lot, first of all, about getting the academic institutions to recognize that we're actually all in the same boat together. When I first came to San Diego 15 years ago, the institutions barely talked to each other unless if they had an ongoing collaboration that resulted Mm -hmm. in a joint invention, so on and so forth. Because I remember asking them all separately when I first arrived, it's like, so do you guys talk like hang out, talk to each other? Like, <laughs> no, why would we do that? I'm like, because it's actually really in New York, we had that. We were called the New York Academic Consortia. So then when I finally joined SALK full time, right? Because I didn't have much sway, influence, or acquaintances when I was still working remotely. I was like, this has got to change. And fortuitously, at the time, people who were in the senior positions in the respective tech transfer offices were actually people that that wanted the same thing. They wanted to connect with each other. So that's another thing. You can't force people to connect with each other. There's got to be some mutual incentive or motivation, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that is that is pretty much how the council got, got born. It was just more of a formalization of the directors coming together and um, and really thinking about how can we do our jobs better? And one thing that I found too is like, you know, it's lonely at the top, right? You're basic, you're, you know, you're by yourself. You're not, you don't really have peers within the same office. And I found that with a lot of these new, new directors coming in, they're like, yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of struggling just, Hmm. just with like the feeling isolated, right. On on their own Island. And I'm like, Oh no, 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 we're, we're, we're going to go get together and hang. Right. And, and that's why we, (laughs) we, we've all bonded so strongly, even though we've now gone in, into dire- different directions. But the council, which started out as that, we realized like, you know what? We are part of the ecosystem. And while there are different enablers of our what we call our overall innovation ecosystem, where are we different? And we realized there wasn't anyone that, first of all, that was highlighting the innovations that were coming out of academia and how they contribute to the overall ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we also realized that um, we wanted to be more inclusive. And that's why our membership actually spans the entire value chain. We have everyone from pharma, me included, all the way to academia. We've included Nucleate. That's an organization that you're, you're familiar with because like your to- guys are totally part of the, in- because remember from academia comes the innovations and the fundamental technology that becomes the foundation for startup companies. Yep. And these startups get incubated in our incubator spaces and 
in other ways, right? Or they operate virtually, right? Now, um, some universities have their own incubators. We have um, other bona fide incubators here. Some of the facilities are built to, to help ac accommodate growing companies. And one thing that San Diego has always wanted is, can we keep the company here? Right? <laughs> yes. It's a big... And that was a challenge. <laughs> yeah, now, still not is. so much. Yeah. Because now we have companies coming from outside Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, et cetera, and they set up shop here. Mm -hmm. We are one of the most welcoming innovation ecosystems, in particular in the life sciences. That's the one I can speak to directly. I, I won't mm -hmm. speak for the others, but, and that's what I've been told. And that's what I've seen. You know, I can walk into one of the restaurants on the Mesa and I'll see CEO of, you know, small company X talking to CEO of small company Y. And they're comparing notes, right? And they're, and they're competitors being, sometimes. But they're not <laughs> nasty to each other because we all realize exactly. like, okay, yeah. In, 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 in biotech world, like, like, you know, if VCX invests into company A, that means they might not invest in company B. But in the end, everyone's doing the same dog and pony show. Yeah. And you might as well share notes on like, <laughs> oh, I had a really good meeting with so-and-so or yeah, my meeting with so-and-so didn't go so well kind of thing, right? And um, and people move around, you know, for a while I was like, wow, you know, why do people like move like every, every two years or so? And sometimes startups fail. Sometimes people just move on because maybe, an, you know, a new board came in. They're like, we need to reorganize stuff happens. No judgments against the person in question. And what I found was that when these events would happen to people, they would just reach out and be like, Hey, um, I'm back on the market. You hear of anything, let me know. And you know, if you've, if you, if, if, if you've been a nice person, there will be at least five people ready to help you. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. And it all becomes about who, who do you know, and who's willing to vouch for you informally, of course, but, and that's what I love about this environment. And because I've now been in San Diego for so long, it's, you know, that, that circle and my, and the connections with the ecosystem, it's, it's just expanded. Right. And, and it's a lot of fun. Um, it is very different from from other places, and I'm perfectly okay with that. You know, for a while we had we had a bit of an insecurity complex, right? Like, how come we're not <laughs> like the Bay, how come we're not like Cambridge. I'm like, guys, the honest truth is like we're not gonna be, and yeah. we shouldn't be. And maybe you don't want to be different be in some ways. <laughs> oh, again, they they all have their successes, but so yeah. do we, right? Yeah. And people are looking at. It's really great to see companies that come in from the outside that want to set up shop here because um you know the, the for instance you know the 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 facilities the buildings you know the lab spaces they're they're gorgeous a lot of them are customizable right having spent a lot of time now with colleagues who are in the biotech real estate business I'm like wow it's it's something right um and and, yeah, and who doesn't want to live in San Diego? Like, and who doesn't want to live on. in San Diego? Right? <laughs> I mean, it's not hard. To, it's not hard to bring in people from the outside. No, it's, and the and, and the money is coming here. It's it's yeah. not at the scale of what it's like in Cambridge, New York, or San Francisco, but it is coming. Yeah. And people from San Francisco come down here anyway, right? So, um, so the council really brings together everybody. Everybody is welcome. You just have to walk through the door. Right. Yeah. That's why we have connect. Right. That's why we have startup San Diego. That's and then because we're not just life sciences, we also include all the other sectors, um, you know, clean tech, high tech, uh, so on and so forth. Our last showcase actually highlighted the defense industry. Hmm. No one's ever really done that. 
but it's yeah, also because which is pretty big in San Diego, actually. It is, and <laughs> that those organizations are actually looking to externalize and partner more. So if we can give them an opportunity and a platform to do that, we're happy to do that. And we actually have one of the representatives um, who acts as an advisor to the Innovation Council Board is from that sector. So he's been able to, to, to build that connectivity for us because, as you know, you know, you have to like certain clearances, you have to know certain people, right? And, yeah. you know, we had, we had a retired admiral be, you know, you know, be one of our main speakers at the showcase. Huh. And, That's pretty cool. And he was absolutely phenomenal. So, and we would have never had him without that, without, without that connection. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really rewarding. It's really interesting. And we just continue to grow and, um, you know, I'm really happy about that. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's, you're, you're in an interesting position. I mean, cause like, look, I, you're like a super connector, to be honest. I, I whenever I go to an organization, whenever I go to an event, whether it's nucleate or, uh, founders corner or whatever it is, uh, um, you're, you're there and you know, everybody. <laughs> and, 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 and I think that puts you in, in a really interesting position to, um, to, to be able to kind of like connect the dots, connect people, help people out. And also like, uh, like you said, it, it kind of, um, it, it's an investment also, uh, in, in your future in a way and not in a self-serving way, but like, you know, I think it's, I think it's helpful for people like grad students to realize that, that the more you get involved in in whatever ecosystem and whatever like niche that 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 you want to you know be working in for long term the better it is for you in your career because um you know you th those relationships compound over time it's like compound interest right um and 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 uh um and then it gives you kind of more optionality in the future but also like it's just fun, you know. You get you get to yes. meet new different types of people, and it seems like that's that's really what is the driving factor for you. Is 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 what I can tell, or is yeah. is, and, is what I'm gleaning. Well, from. and 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 you also have to understand that as as human beings, right? That's that's who we are, and yeah. relationship building is not about being transactional, and that's something that a lot of people don't seem to understand fully until they get burned because those that treat every single relationship, every single connection as purely transactional, it doesn't go over well because yeah. it's not sustainable in a long-term way. And nobody really wants to talk to you like, Oh, you want to talk to me because you want something. Yeah. Look, yeah. I get it. But one, let's, 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 let's be chill about it. Right. Like, <laughs> don't be super obvious. <laughs> That's like I said about, but, you, but, you, but you know what I'm saying? Like, with the, like, like, like the example of, of the informational interviewing, right? Yeah, you're yeah. not going into that conversation with your handout. Oh, are you hiring? I need a job. Exactly. That, that'll shut down everybody, right? <laughs> I, I, totally. I'm, like, I'm like, I don't think that's the purpose of this conversation. Shall we pivot? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and networking. Networking is not about being transactional. I mean, it can lead to a transaction. Right. But you can't go into everything. It's like, oh, you're not important enough for me to talk to because I won't get anything out of it. That is not a good place to start. And that's rule number one in our business, any business. Don't be a jerk. Everybody, because everybody will remember how badly you behaved, how badly they made you feel. Yeah. And you'll never get your get get other conversations that you could have if you would just sort of. Mm, right. Be sincerely interested in people, in finding out who 
they are. Remember, people love to talk about themselves and you learn so much when you actually actively listen about what they are. Half the time I go to a networking event and I'm like, ah, and I'll say, hey, you know what? Um, I definitely, I definitely want to talk to you about, about this. This might not be the best time or place, but can we, can we connect after, right? Yeah. Because especially if you're in like a big log cocktail party, the last thing you want to do is like, you know, go through like a, a presentation on an asset. I'm like, no, we're going to go table this until, until later, but I'm so glad I got to meet you. Right. Yeah. You get the yeah. card, you get the LinkedIn QR code, and then it's, it's, it's easy peasy. And so when they say, read the room, do read the room. Like, you know, I mean, I've had people jump, you know, jump down my throat, be like, oh my God, you're Novo. I was like, I was like, I was like you have to take this asset of mine. I'm like, actually, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Could uh, maybe just say hi real quick. <laughs> like, <laughs> tell it's like, me, hi. Who, who yeah. Are you? Exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a little bit of that. I, I must say that over the years, it has been nice, especially when I went on to what we call the buy side, right? This, this scouting piece. Mm-hmm. It's lovely to have people wanting to talk to you, but sometimes it can be like, wow, okay, that's that's a lot to take, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But that's also what I say too. It's like, you know what? People want to do with pe- business with people that they enjoy being around, right? Um, a lot of people are just like, oh, you know, is it really that necessary to go to dinner? I'm like, yeah, actually it is because it's about, again, the breaking down of the defenses. It's really hard to be like super formal when, you know, you're, you know, you're breaking bread together, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's why the pandemic, I think, was hard for a lot of people because not being able to have that in-person interaction, right? Not to being have that, that what I call the breaking of the bread together was challenging, but we all managed but we were all so happy when, you know, when we were able to to reconnect in person, um, person as well. And I think, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, we're we're pretty much almost almost back to normal. So. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think so, and and uh, um, it, it's certainly like refreshing to see people at events and like to be able to to meet new people, right? Because that's like the world of, of, of Zoom and the world of like all these virtual meetings is great in that like it's it's enabled you to have like in-person dis- or, or like, you know, kind of in-person discussions with people across the world and across the country. But like that's that it, it's restricted to conversations or or like kind of very niche groups of people whereas like you know some some of the in-person events like conferences and things i mean you can't replicate that well and imagine i work for a global company right so i have many colleagues i mean i'm pretty much almost out here in san diego by myself there's like maybe two or three other people out here and we do make an effort to see each other but a lot of our r&d sites we've seattle indianapolis boston denmark oxford I mainly see them as a face in a box, right? And, yeah, yeah. And the beauty of, you know, having Teams, Zoom, et cetera, is that you can have a meeting and you can have a face-to-face, not in person, not, not an in-person and body interaction, but, an in, you know, a face-to-face. You can see, you can at least, that's what you look like. That's what you sound like, right? And you can get the conversation going regardless of where, wherever you are in the world, which is fantastic. That is, that is, that is a huge plus for having this remote capability, but the relationships shift and most likely improve when you do finally meet in person. When I have met my colleagues, that's why I was in Denmark last week. I get to, it's my reunion with my own teammates. 
right, who are scattered across across the world, and um, and 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 we have a lot of fun together, and it actually does strengthen the team to have that periodic come together, see each other in person. Oh, that's how tall you are, right? That's how short <laughs> you are, right? Um, and 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 so I think you, I think it's good to have both, right? Um, and 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 that, but again. When you're a people person, I know I need, uh, I definitely need both. I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective. We, uh, we talked about this a little bit offline and, and um, there was a the stat news article that came out recently by Jonathan Wilson and um, really great, really great article. He did some good research on it. He's based here in San Diego also. Um, oh, um, and uh, it, it highlighted um, one of the main points that, that came out is like, academic labs are uh, having a hard time recruiting postdocs. They're having a hard time bringing people in because uh, a myriad number of reasons, one of which being pay, which right now uh, the UC system, a lot of uh, workers are, are on strike um, for, for pay increases. Um, you, you see even like uh, PIs that are, that are involved and, and uh, um, supportive of it. Um, but uh, it, it's it's interesting to see like what's happening, you know, all these changes happening within the academic system, and and um, you know, to me, it's like it's both it's exciting in the sense that like there's this opportunity, and you know, maybe we're at this point of of drastic change within academia where you know something's going to have to happen, like there's going to have to be actions that are done, whether at a governmental level or at an institution level, or you know, uh, you know, from, from the ground up. Um, so I, th- I think that there's like change on the horizon. Um, but like, it, it's also kind of concerning to me from the sense that, um, academia is the source of most of the innovation that happens within industry. Um, you know, the, a lot of the basic discoveries that, that happen within a- academia, they, they allow for the tools that are built, you know, like, CRISPR or PCR or uh, any, any of these things that, that are really kind of foundational technological aspects of, of industry. And so um, I know that you are kind of like interested in this article. And so I'm, I'm just kind of yeah. curious to hear your perspective and, and, and your read from, uh, from those discussions. Yeah. So, you know, as I've alluded to before in the description of my journey, I am certainly one of those people that was not, never successfully recruited to become a postdoc in, in <laughs> sure, and I know what my reasons were. Right, was simply like I don't want to be at the bench. That is a purely like my my singular decision based on my self analysis. Right, this is not going to get me where where I want to be. That was yeah. not my perspective, and I had the opportunity to essentially not to have to do that step. There are plenty of people in academic tech transfer, business development that have done postdocs, and fabulous for them. Right, some people just. Yeah get to their, um, their pivot point, as, as you, as, you know, as, as you put it at different times, there's no, no, no right or wrong on that. We're all on our, on our own respective journeys. A lot of the stuff in that article resonated with me because it very much reflected what, why it might, what my experience was. Um, Mm -hmm. and it comes down to sort of you know, and again, you know, keep in mind, I've, I've, I've been out of that for, for a considerable amount of time. So I can't say to what degree things have changed, but the academic scientific 
life back then for me did not support a strong work-life balance. At the time, all of the female PIs that were at Rockefeller did not have children. Some of them just simply didn't. Some of them just didn't have them yet. Wow. Okay. Okay. Um, So if I was to look at those female PIs as role models, I'm like, but you don't have kids. So what's, it's not the right mirror for me. Right. Did you have kids by the time you had uh, finished your? No, okay, but, but you were, it was but you were in. About it, it was in our. <laughs> it was yeah, in our plan. It was yeah. in our plan, and um, you know, as you and I both know, relationships of all types, but certainly marriages, par- partnerships, they take work, they take okay. time, yeah. and mm-hmm. you know, and when one of you is also unhappy, stressed out, working like crazy, never available, it's hard, right? It's it's really hard to do that, and. Um, it was important for me not to compromise the quality of, 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 of my partnership. Right. So, so those were my personal drivers. Right. And that's what really, really shaped me. I can't speak for everyone else, but if we just take several steps back and look at the macro situation that's going on, and let's just focus on San Diego, cause that's what we know and what we're intimate with. Right. Yep. What, there's a couple of factors that are going into this. One is, and I, I put this in my comments when you repost that LinkedIn article was that, when I was a grad student, I lived in a very expensive city. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. New York City, Manhattan, Upper East Side, okay? But the Rockefeller University provided highly subsidized student housing. They yeah. also kept the program at a reasonable number. My entering class was 25 people. Okay? Again, small research institution. So it's scale it's the appropriate scale. So there was always plenty of there was always an, enough housing for everybody. You also were given a stipend. I also had an external fellowship. So I, my stipend was a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, I did not meet my, my partner until my, um, uh, my second year. So at least that first year I was kind of on my own. Right. And they had situations where, you know, you have a two bedroom apartment, but each of you have your own bedroom. I'm hearing yeah. right now that some of our, our, our students and, and postdocs here are you have a two bedroom apartment, but you there's five people sharing it. Oh gosh, yeah. So That's it's a crazy. quality of life issue, Nick, more than anything else. And you know, I was talking about this with some of my friends and colleagues the other day. It's like, guys, we all know that you can't function well at work. And science, you have to be creative. When is your mind most creative? When you're not stressing out about your basic needs. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Shelter, food, etc. I mean if you're worried about money all the time, if you're worried, how can I live? Where's my next meal going to come from? How can you think about what the next big CRISPR experience, CRISPR is, what the next big tech, no, that, I don't think we're thinking hard enough about that. I agree. I, right? I just like my, my anecdotal experience to, to kind of add on to yours is like, yeah. you know, this is a little bit like in, in the, um, kind of the middle ground between like when you went to grad school and, and today. Um, so I, I, did have a, a kid by the time I started grad school and, and I was married and, um, and my spouse, uh, who is like, you know, uh, I, I owe everything to, um, she, uh, stayed home to be able to, to watch our daughter. And, um, and so, you know, I had to be very deliberate about where I went to graduate school. Like I, New York was out of the option, like out of the option pool, like Stanford. I didn't apply to Har- Harvard, Stanford, Columbia because I knew like 
there's just no way I was going to be able to do it. And so um, I, I was very deliberate about where I applied uh, to like strong programs in a place that was affordable. And even then, uh, so I ended up in, in Baltimore for my PhD. Um, and uh, e- even then, like we would not have survived without food stamps, <laughs> which is a crazy idea, right? I mean, we were living dirt cheap and 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 uh um we 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 made it work but the, by the time i get into a postdoc uh, at UCSD and um you know this was this was you know 6 years ago maybe um it, it was like you know it, it it was totally untenable so i did it for a while i did it as long as i could and i wanted to be an be an academic um and mm-hmm. and uh have that tenure track position but um, you know, I, I just realized like that wasn't in the cards. And, and, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that some changes will be made to make this more, uh, tenable. I, I, I think it's, there, it's a big, it's going to be a big uphill battle because, you know, that's, that's one of the challenges is that many of the best institutions are in the most expensive places. Right. Right. And that is that is an issue that I think has to be examined at all levels, right? Because, for instance, if the NIH is dictating what graduate student stipends and and postdoc salaries are, suppose the NIH takes this into account. I'm not, but keep in mind too that in San Diego, in particular, and probably it's a little bit more of an of a national thing too, was that the housing markets went through the roof. Oh yeah, yeah. It's and, like yeah. And then when you have a lack of the subsidized house. Again, remember, I was in New York City. There's no way I could have lived in New York had I not been able to get a grad student apartment, right? And I'm not even going to tell you what I paid for my grad student apartment because people would be like, oh my God. Um, <laughs> but it was good. It. it was really, really good. Um, and that's how Rockefeller made it work. That's how Rockefeller made, managed to stay competitive. Yeah. I was never a postdoc, but what I what my understanding was that there was postdoc housing also subsidized, maybe to not as to higher percentage as the grad students, but understanding that that postdocs tend to be of the family starting, family having age, right? Mm-hmm. So that the postdoc housing were certainly the two three bedroom apartments, and they also had daycare. Yeah, daycare was not free, but also subsidized highly yeah. subsidized. And if the calculus was done, like knowing that the postdoc salary was going to be this and the take-home amount was going to be this, right? Then this is how much you could reasonably charge for the rent. This is how much you could reasonably charge for the daycare and so on and so forth, right? And did now it's like a lottery to get into those things. But, but I'm saying it's like, but we, and I will say to Gretchen, I did not live a lavish lifestyle, you know? Yeah. But I, I could definitely afford the basics, right? Yeah. I cook more than, but you know, but we also figure out where like all the bargain basement takeout places were too, right? And then occasionally <laughs> sure. you would splurge, right? But never at one point did I feel like I'm I'm not going to make it. Of course, I didn't have to have a car. That's the beauty of living in a city like that. In San Diego, you kind of need a car. So that's an additional expense. So it all adds up quite rapidly. And when the housing, you know, when you're, the institution doesn't provide you with subsidized housing, and then you have to go into the quote unquote, real world rental market. Okay, we, yeah. we know the rentals here. They're insanely expensive. Yep. I will yep. tell you right now, I found out that <laughs> that some of the rents here for, you know, you know, you know, for 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 a two, three bedroom apartment is is more than than a, than an apartment in New York now. Oh, gosh. 
right? So just to give you some perspective, it's like if more than half of someone's paycheck is going to rent, then what's left, right? Very, yeah. very little. And so, so that struggle is real and they're feeling it. And I, I have a lot of empathy for, for that. Right. And cause I just don't see like, how, how do you go to, to, to the lab and, and be the best version of yourself when you have, when you have this burden. Right. And so yeah. I, I understand why they're doing what they're doing. I understand why there's this problem and about academic labs, not recruiting postdocs. Here's another thing. The, 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 the startups, the, the, the biotech industry, while the markets are not good right now, but they're still popping up and there's a heavy recruiting now yeah. um, on the industry side for, for scientific talent. And, you know, I think it was expressed in the article, if, if I can go to company X without doing a postdoc, then why would I go and do a postdoc and, you know, make you know, why times, why times less, right? I don't know what all the yeah. magnitudes are, but yeah, I mean, and I hate to say this, industry does, does pay better, right? And then there's other, other fields, right? I think one of the, the women that was quoted in the article was going to intellectual property law, right? Yeah, that can be very lucrative for some people, very rewarding. You stay close to the science. This is great for people who are maybe not so much like as, as people oriented as I am, but they mm -hmm. love like being able to like, oh, let's take the science and translate it and and to know that there's an application, right? Because patents are important. So are trademarks and trade secrets and so forth. So Right. And maybe they're like interested in the details and yeah. and uh yeah. Kind yeah. Of so money's not the only driver, yeah. but yeah. it is it is a piece, it, it's not an insignificant piece of of the puzzle. Um, you know, I mean so when people ask me why you why I went to tech transfer versus something else, I was like, Oh, I one, I did not do it for for the money. Um, I was really more interested in being able to stay close to the science. Early stage has always been my first love, my wheelhouse, right? That's, that's what I find super exciting. Um, and I made enough to live, right? And that's really all, all, all I needed. Um, you know, if I wanted to make money, you know, one of my uncles said to me, he's like, why don't you like, you know, go into investment banking, you know, become an <laughs> analyst, you know, you'll work like, like crazy for, you know, for five years. But after that, you can just do whatever you want. I'm like. You know, that's looking back, that might have been such a bad thing, but at the time, I mean, you know, I, I made, I made, I made the choice that felt, that felt, felt right for me. And, but yeah, if I had to do it all over again, I'm not quite sure knowing, knowing what I know now, but <laughs> yeah. I, I have no complaints about, about my journey as, as I've taken it. Yeah. It's really cool, uh, journey and, and just like in really interesting to hear the story because my own experience was maybe a little bit more skewed toward like the investment banking side where I, I did consulting. I, I worked at a, a large yeah. consulting firm and, and, um, you know, uh, we went from living in squalor to being able to afford like a home, yeah. but like, you know, I, I think the point that, that, I don't know if, if it's the point that we're making, but like, I, I, I think that an important point that comes out of this is, is really comes back to what you were saying before is like really assessing yourself, your situation, the things that you care about and, and that like you're excited about um, and, and then stepping back and saying, okay, what are, what are the options? And then kind of mapping those two and, 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 and finding 
what are what are what, what what's going to drive you to be successful and and to continue to have like that fire and that passion right and and uh whether that is is like staying early stage like companies for me it was like just even being able to stay in San Diego, like that was an important thing for me, you know? And so um, it, it's different for everybody, but like there's options out there. Um, and, and, and I also, also like, you know, this is something that I, I personally am very, very, very cognizant of like doing a podcast where I'm talking to people across all these different industries. Like I, I wanted to be a PI. I wanted to like make the academic path work for myself i still think that there's a huge value like in it and and um you know if that's the thing like if you can make it work awesome um but you know it's, it's good to hear that like it, 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 i think it's really interesting to hear your perspective of being able to kind of like make that transition by staying closer to the the science staying closer to the academic system um but but also kind of forging this 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 path that may be a little bit more viable financially in the long run but also like um you know really enables you to kind of stay like be a connector uh between people companies um academic institutions it's a really cool path and again if if that is what gets you out of bed in the morning right i think that's really the ultimate measurement when you wake up are you excited about what the day holds are you like Here we go back to the grind again. Yeah, Mondays are still a little tough, right? But that's just because it's a Monday. But yeah. no, in general, I'm pretty like okay. You know, let's. You know, I always know I'm going to meet someone new, learn something new, um, or you know, you know, take care of a matter. And and every day is different, and and that's that, that's what makes me happy. And and that's, that's really awesome. the, the the whole point. Like, see how you feel in the morning, right? Everything else, <laughs> notwithstanding. If you if you had any like last bit of advice for uh, an emerging like PhD student or postdoc, um, what, what, what would you say? So I'll say this again, take a good hard look at yourself, right? And think very hard about what are your drivers? What are your deal breakers, right? And start to think about the path that is you running towards something better, right? Higher. Um, than running away from something because it's making you unhappy, right? Because otherwise you lose direction, you lose purpose. And then you eventually kind of like, oh, you know, I just, I'm just going with the flow or I'm just doing what everyone else is doing. It's like, you have to do what's right for you. You don't want to wake up 15 years later and be like, I totally did all the wrong things. Yeah. So having directionality, knowing like what your end goal is going to be and whether it's like, you know, you know, it doesn't, you don't always have to be going straight toward that, that end goal, but you know, there's going to be twists and turns along the path. Right. But like, at least knowing like the directionality, I, th- I think that's such good advice because, you know, uh, I, the, the concern is that sometimes people get to these like really difficult positions where, um, they just have to make a decision. They have to figure something out and, and then, uh, you know, it's kind of being reactive a little bit, but, uh, it's really good advice to, to, um, run, run toward things rather than away from things. Yeah, and, and, and this, and the second half of that is that when, and then when you've charted that, just go for it. And when you've arrived, pour your, you pour your entire professional self into it. Like don't do, don't do things halfway, right. Don't just yeah. try to pull a paycheck. Right. And that's, that's really where really being in touch with yourself and doing what meets the majority of your drivers, that'll keep you from being just mediocre. 
right? Yeah. That because there's lots of people out there that are just like again, I say I work so that I can live, but I also really love what I do. Yeah, and I'm sure right? you've worked really hard to get there. <laughs> and and yeah, and some days are harder than others, but if you don't have that excitement, that self motivation, what happens then is you kind of just sort of stay in the middle to bottom and and nobody really notices, right? Yeah. You, you, the, the, the best promoter for you is you. No one's going to do it for you, right? Absolutely. And that's what I look for. Like anytime I've hired an intern, anytime I've a team, I'm like, where's that fire in your belly? Yeah. Right? And I like the ones that have it, right? Because then I know it just takes a little help, a little push, and boom, you know, they can, you know, really take off versus the ones you're, you're like, Okay, come on, come on. I have to speak to you like <laughs> every answer to the question. And that's where the informational interviews come in handy. So again, pour your heart and soul into it, right? And just just stay really conscious and mindful. Well, awesome. This has been great, Tari. Thank you so much for for your time you. on the coming on the podcast and sharing your your story and and uh, I think it's going to be really useful to a lot of people. Awesome. Thanks so much, Nick, for having me. Appreciate it. This is the Once a Scientist podcast. I'm Nick Edwards, the host and producer. Caroline Sparazza and Sam Asinoff co-produced the show. If you like this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. And thanks for listening.